Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Forever Saturday podcast, because it is always college football Saturday in our house. I'm Serena, better known as S. George at R on Twitter. And I'm Matt, also at MattSwartz723. So as we record this, it's Halloween, so happy Halloween, and we will try not to keep it too spooky as we talk about SignGate part 9 million here. You have your sunglasses and your fake goatee ready for, for going out for the night? I don't know that the fake goatee is a good look for me. <laughs> yeah, all right, like, that's we, fair. We know Arab women do be rocking the facial hair, but it is not my favorite you look. You don't need extra fake facial hair? No, no. We get enough of it on our own, honestly. <laughs> Um, no, we're going to talk about SignGate. There have been some recent developments. And actually, SignGate as a name sucks. I, we should stop renaming everything great. Gate. Yeah. I'm, I still prefer, I've seen it all over Twitter, Steel Team 6 is, is way better. But it's like lengthy. I can work with that. Yeah. It's, like, it's, it's not quite as punchy. We yeah. got to workshop this. We'll it come needs, up with something. It needs like the USC, like it, you know how they called that like varsity blues or whatever, yeah, like yeah. USC admission scandal. Like that's what I need. It needs to be like shorter. It needs to be catchier. But anyway, we'll workshop this. We'll talk a little bit about that. We'll recap some of the games that took place on Michigan's bye. And of course we will preview this week's opponent, which is Purdue. So we're going to start with Signgate and Connor Stallions goatee and sunglasses <laughs> at the central Michigan, Michigan state game. So there haven't been a ton of material updates here in terms of actual substantial allegations. The most recent was, you know, a tweet started circulating on Monday night that suggested that a person who looks quite quite a bit like Connor Stallions on the sideline of the Central Michigan Michigan State game that took place on Friday night, the week before Michigan or the night before Michigan played its opener right. um, for this season. And so, you know, most of the time, right, it's not feasible for Stallions to be at opposing games because he's at our game. But in this instance, you know, because it was a local game that took place on a Friday night. It was possible. And this one had been swirling around on the message boards for some time that, you know, people were under the impression that this information was going to come out. And it appears to have Central Michigan is investigating who this person is purportedly. Um, But, you know, there seems to be a growing consensus that it is, in fact, Stallions. And so the question, I suppose, is does this move the needle for you or, you know, for me, I suppose I'll chime in after you get the chance to about how we feel about these allegations. Well, it's very funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that it's part is... unbelievably stupid. <laughs> yeah, this has ascended to like one of the most absurd scandals, if you want to call it a scandal, that it's I like, can ever remember in sports. It's approaching pole assassin territory. Like, Do you remember pole assassin? No. You don't? Unless this is a name for something that I am familiar with, but I'm not familiar with the name it that was, was attributed to it. It was the, um, hold on. Yeah, no, she was some sort of, like, stripper, I mean, ergo pole assassin, who had some sort of relationship, maybe, with a special teams coach at Texas, and she had a pet monkey. I don't really remember the details. I sort of remember. (laughs) I didn't recall pole assassin specifically as, like, the the title that had been established here. But, yeah, this does sound familiar now. Okay, I I got you. But, yeah, that that was weird, for sure. Right bizarre bizarre college football news i don't even really remember like what happened or how it broke out but i remember pole assassin i remember the monkey i remember it being very strange this one i'm going to remember the details of a lot better because it's not texas it's michigan (laughs) but like what college football is so so strange 
It's perfect. Uh, but to your question as to whether this moves the needle, I don't think it does on the allegations themselves, because if the original like scouting in-person issue is in fact a violation or is going to be deemed as one by the NCAA, then this is just one more incident out of the 30-some that we already knew about, right? So we've gone from 35 to 36 or whatever the number of games is that are in question here. But I actually don't think this is even bad for Michigan, really, because and I've been trying to think about, like, I've been thinking this, and I've seen a bunch of other people kind of framing Wait it Wait a minute, way. I have to stop you. I'm sorry. Okay. Pull Assassin's Monkey bit a child on Halloween when it was at oh. Jeff Banks's house, and they had to pry the monkey's jaws yeah. off of a small child, and that was how the story of the yes. affair broke. <laughs> now it's all coming back to me. I'm, I'm on a, Halloween, too. Very yeah, topical. I know. Look at us. But... Anyway, sorry. I, I had to, the full de- I, I had, had to, totally forgotten. I about had that. to actually chime in with that because it's wild. No, that's an unbelievable detail. Totally forgotten about that, but that is very funny. But, but no, I was I was trying to think of like why exactly it seems to me and to a bunch of other people that I've seen that this isn't actually bad for Michigan. And it's really that there are basically two possibilities here, two overarching possibilities for the way that this whole thing has played out. One is that this was all Connor Stallions, right? He's been coordinating, like, having scouts at games, aggregating the footage. This was all his scheme, for lack of a better word, to get better at his job and to advance himself in his career. That's one possibility. The other is that Michigan, at some level within the coaching staff, institutionally set up and orchestrated this elaborate system, with Stallions obviously as the point person, with the goal of using third parties to record signs and operate in a targeted gray area of the NCAA bylaws. Right, what we termed the gray area in our last right. episode about this. But when you think about it in that context, the Central Michigan thing is very strong evidence in favor of number one, right, that this was all stallions. Because if Michigan set all this up to use third parties to operate in this gray area of the NCAA you bylaws... You wouldn't nuke it by sending stallions right. himself to stand then on the sideline. to a game in person and visibly interacting with the coaching staff against one of your biggest rivals, it just it doesn't clear even the first analytical hurdle of, does this seem plausible at all? It doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. Uh, this is all, of course, assuming that this is, in fact, Stallions, because if it isn't, then all of this is moot, and nothing has been added to the original discussion of where we were at you know, three or four days ago. Yeah. But assuming that it is, that's kind of where I'm landing as to, like, this is just further evidence that Stallions is just kind of a, a grind set weirdo doing weirdo things. And if that's the case, this doesn't actually seem to implicate Michigan beyond him, in which case we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. But that's kind of the takeaway that I have here based on this you know screenshot that's been circulating around Twitter. Yeah, I mean, there's no hours. way. There's no chance that Michigan is sanctioning a member of its staff standing on a sideline right. of another team during a live game against a team that's on Michigan's schedule. No chance. 0%. Especially not Connor fucking Stallions. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it, it's it just doesn't it doesn't pass logical muster for me. And no. so you're right. I think the more pieces fall into place, the more we're getting into lone wolf territory. I mean, you add the 600-page manifesto. I don't know if that detail was out when we recorded last. I don't think it was, actually. But the 600-page manifesto, I mean, like, this guy is looking very lunatic-y. <laughs> and I say that as a person who 
podcast is about Michigan football as a hobby. <laughs> Correct. So I know not to throw stones when I live Pot, in a glass kettle, house, but like that's crazier than me. And that's a high bar. You're right. clearing a high bar right now, Connor. And I think that does sort of segue into a couple of the other updates that have come out that are pretty relevant here, one of which is that late last week there was a report from Chris Ballas at On3 that Michigan apparently, at least thus far, has not been pursuing with the NCAA the non-staffer third-party loophole that we talked about last time, the gray area argument. The gray area defense, yeah. Right, which is interesting. But it makes it seem, at least, that Michigan is willing to acknowledge that the in-person scouting or the scouting by proxy, I think was what you called it on our last podcast, was a violation, regardless of whether or not it was Connor Stallions doing it. And their argument then, obviously, is going to be that this was confined to Stallions, and it went no further up the ladder, or nobody higher up on the coaching staff was aware of it. Which, again, kind of plays back into the idea that if Michigan was operating this system institutionally and had a, a clear argument for this is a gray area and we're going to take our, our defense in front of the NCA and make that claim, this doesn't really align with that. This aligns with the idea that they didn't know, and when they found out, they said, okay, this is bad, but nobody knew about it except for Connor Stallions. And on a related note, from the uh, the MGO blog message board guy, who's uh, again seems to be some kind of Connor Stallions insider, some relationship where he's had all of this stuff. Yeah, the like message a day board stuff advance. on this has been fascinating because hilariously, there's one guy on the M. Oh, M I don't even know if it's a guy. I'm assuming gender. One person right. on the MGO blog message board who seems to know everything from the Stallion side, and conspicuously. The Ohio State insiders happen to know everything that is about to drop before it does also, for reasons I'm sure we will discuss shortly. Yes, correct. But, you know, it's been a weird message board scandal. Like, the message boards have been way ahead of the curve on this. And, and normally, like, that shit is just nonsense. Well, it's a fun one because, they're like, as with all things, 95% of it is complete fantasy land bullshit. But the 5% here has been very accurate. You just have a hard time identifying in advance which 5% is actually meaningful and what's the, you know, what's the signal and the noise, basically. But, yeah, so the guy who's been kind of, or as you said, the person, the message board person who's been ahead of the stuff here has laid out some details that do largely confirm that this was all a Connor Stallions thing. Number one, apparently he was funding all of the payments to the third-party individuals personally with his own money, which kind of removes Michigan from the squishiness of you know were you reimbursing was the school kind of paying for this in some sense where it's hard to argue a full delineation between stallions and the university and then number two is that as we've heard from the washington post report about the drive that was accessed or that information was pulled off of and then was provided to the nca this was apparently set up as a google drive for people to upload videos to but it doesn't appear that this was actually a like private michigan hosted drive or that any other coaches accessed it. Whether they actually had the ability to access it is kind of unclear. We don't know what the you know permissions were that he had set up. But Yeah, I mean listen, sometimes I have right, I do discovery from time yeah. to time at work. And a private investigative firm was the source of the information to the Washington Post. Correct. Right? Listen. And to the NCAA. And to the All NCAA. of the information that's come yes. out here has apparently stemmed from this investigative firm. Correct. I mean, yeah, not not our message board posters, well, right, but yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're getting information from a private investigative firm who is 
invest has investigated Michigan for reasons that, you know, we will speculate about later. But one of the things that seems clear to me as a person who has done discovery in cases like this before, well, not cases like this, there are no cases like this, <laughs> but in, in litigation context before is it's pretty easy to get the metadata, right? Yeah. Like it, you typically can figure out who accessed a drive and when, and part of me feels like if folks higher up than stallions were accessing the drive, the metadata would have revealed that. And I have to imagine an investigative firm knows how to access metadata For and sure. the metadata would have revealed that. And the story would have led with that. Right. And right? even the Yahoo and Washington Post reports both said there has been no evidence or indications that directly link Jim Harbaugh to this. So it's been pretty clear that if that evidence existed, it would have been laid out given that you had four days of pretty steady, like obviously premeditated leaks in the way that this was managed, the release of this story. And at no point was anybody able to link anybody on Michigan's coaching staff, including explicitly Jim Harbaugh, to what was actually happening here. Yeah, this is a hit. Oh, yeah. yeah like, no it question. is totally a hit between the private investigative firm and the way that this has been leaking. I mean, all of Twitter is jokes like, oh, it's it's leak o'clock. You right. know, like, we're, ge we're getting the leak for today. Like 5 p.m. Eastern time every day. The leaks are coming out. The right. stories are hitting at, like, 6 p.m. It's very there, – there's a very clear pattern here that is not just investigations with, oh, we found some information. We've got something up. We found some information. We've got something going up. This is systematic. It's, it, it feels that way. Yeah. I mean, it's so well-timed and realistically, you know, as we've come to learn when you, when you're getting each piece of information one by one, you're like, oh man, that's new. Right. And then when you look at it actually in the grand scheme of things, you're like, wait a minute, each one of these incremental reports I got didn't really add that much information to what I already knew. They've been mostly Just filling marginal. In marginal blanks. It's basically. been mostly marginal. The kind of marginal where you feel like all of these details were probably actually known at the same time. For sure. And they're just holding some of them back. And part of me is like that's a hit and the other part of me is like they're milking this for however many the maximal clicks. Right. That like, OK, if we write about the story today and then we add a detail tomorrow and then we're going to get a million more clicks tomorrow. Like it, those two things are not necessarily right. Like it, it feels like a hit. Honestly, it really does. But it might also just be a lot of very deliberate clickbaiting. Right. From the, the, the folks involved who have incentives to release information that way because um, it's good for their bottom line. And so it's it's been really really bizarre to say the very least yes uh but i guess just going back to our point before it, it does appear from all the evidence that we have thus far and the fact that there's really no evidence to the contrary that's come out through several days of you know again systematic leaks that this was pretty well contained to counter stallions that obviously means that stallions is going to be done at michigan right like if michigan is already acknowledging like yeah this was a violation it's fine. He did all of it. Like, they're throwing him under the bus, as they should. And then I think the separate and bigger question... It's not question that hard there, to throw manifesto guy oh, under the of bus. of course not. <laughs> He's not exactly helping himself with Fucking every detail like, we learn about all of this stuff. But anyway, the bigger question here I that people have it. brought up... Oh, my God. It's got to be... I want to read it. Like, <laughs> what, are, what are the rantings like of a person who's gone, like, full Unabomber, but about Michigan football? <laughs> like, that's crazy. I want to read it. I'm serious. 
Hey, let me just uh, delete a couple of files here. <laughs> I want to annotate it. I want, I want to mark that shit up. I've been saying that there's a, an alternate universe where, like, if the NCAA football games had never been canceled, Connor Stallions is just in, like, the year 2067 running a Michigan dynasty on NCAA 22 right now, and none of this has ever happened because he's got an outlet for this craziness that just no longer exists. So this is all Ed O'Bannon and Sam Keller's fault for getting uh, NCAA football canceled a decade ago. I'm still holding grudges about that. It'll be back soon. It will be back soon. That's true. But anyway, we were talking about the bigger question here that people have brought up and said, well, it doesn't actually matter how far this went up the chain because Harbaugh is ultimately responsible for this, with the NCA having recently added bylaw 11.1.1, which is titled Head Coach Responsibility, and, quote, imposes a presumption of head coach accountability for impermissible acts committed by assistant coaches and administrators within their program, end quote. I want to talk about this. I'm chomping yeah. at the bit to talk about this because I think the coverage of this rule has been kind of bullshit. And the reason why is this. I'm going to make an analogy to something that exists in the legal world. It's not going to be a fully fledged analogy, but I'm, I'm hopeful that it will get the point across. Right. So in the law, there's this idea of vicarious liability. Right. The idea that it, it typically runs like the most common example is employer employee vicarious liability. That vicarious liability is why you can sue UPS if you get in an accident with a UPS truck. Right. If they if they hit you with your truck, you're not limited to suing the driver. You can sue the company because there's a there's, you know, a, a doctrine that makes the company responsible for the conduct of its driver. Within the normal scope of their employment. Correct. Right? Well, That's they're driving the truck. For work. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. They're driving That's the normal, truck. It's normal normal work stuff that they're doing. And yeah. I think people are treating eleven point one point one as though it is that, right? That Jim Harbaugh is, as the coach, responsible for all of the infractions committed by all of the people who work underneath him. Like Harbaugh is the company right. and Stallions is your UPS driver. And I don't think that's what the rule says, right? The rule says that there is a presumption of head coach accountability for impermissible acts committed by assistant coaches and administrators within their program. But the thing about presumptions is they are rebuttable, right? So the most common presumption that people think about in the United States is the presumption of innocence, right? I'm presumed innocent until I am proven guilty. But yeah. the, the process of proving guilty right, is kind of the flip side of the coin of a presumption here of responsibility. Right. So they they can still put forth the evidence to prove me guilty. And then when they have, they have rebutted my presumption of innocence. On the flip side, Harbaugh is presumed responsible, but he is now in a position where he can put forth evidence to rebut that presumption. Right. And so to the it's not just like he's liable, he's the head coach, it's done. That's right. not how it works. Right. He is in a position to rebut that presumption. So if he can say, look, here are all of the things that I do to monitor compliance within my program. I go to Connor. I he, I make him attend trainings about these rules. Right. I they do have to this. click through their little webinars and sign off that they completed right. the compliance training for 2023 or, or whatever. In the in you know, and we don't know if this is true. This is all speculation on my part. But if there were efforts taken by Stallions to actively conceal 
what he was doing from the staff, right? So Harbaugh is being diligent, but he is being actively lied to or concealed from by a member on his staff, right? These are facts that would tend to rebut the presumption of responsibility. It's not like a, you know, strictly the rule says you are liable for your, your assistant coach's behavior. That's not how it works. If Harbaugh can put forth evidence to rebut the presumption by saying, look, I do my best here. Here's how often I check in with these guys. Here's what I talk to them about. Here's how I make them train. Here's Here's Connor Stallion's document that says that he is complying with NCAA rules, whereas actually he is attending other games in disguise or like weird stuff. I think that's part of... He can rebut the presumption. Like, I think a lot of the Twitter discourse is like, he's still responsible no matter what. And it's like, it's not no matter what. There is an obvious limitation on his responsibility, right? Which is, can he or can he not rebut the presumption? And so, no, you don't just get to... You don't just get to bang, bang the gavel and say, you're the head coach, it's over. That's that's not how this shit works. And I, no one is talking about the ability to rebut the presumption. They're talking about the presumption and not the opposite side of that coin. And I found the coverage of that really frustrating. Well, that holds true for a lot of things with this, yeah, I <laughs> like mean, all of it. <laughs> for real. Pete Thamel's quoting the wrong fucking rules oh, in his article. Yeah, or whatever that, the fuck. Among other like, things. Like, be serious. But yeah, that's something we've talked about a little bit is like, there's a reasonable, let me take a step back. I think the reason this rule was put in place was especially what we've seen around college basketball the last few years, where there have been a bunch of scandals with assistant coaches orchestrating bag dropping schemes, sometimes including like apparel companies, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end, the head coach serves up a couple heads on a platter and says, I had no idea all of my assistant coaches were paying all of my recruits. Wink, wink. I'm out of here. Like, I really think that's what was the intent of this rule was to target things like that right. and there's it's an obvious Sean Miller it's right we know who the rule is intended for there's an obvious like should you have known component that's what this is trying to get at right and there are things like are all of your assistants paying all of your recruits you should know that and you almost certainly do should Jim Harbaugh know that Connor Stallions is an incredible weirdo who has a Michigan manifesto and then travels to central Michigan games to be in disguise on the sidelines I, I and that he's Venmoing a whole bunch of students at games at random Big Ten campuses. Right. There's obviously somewhere down the line where you have to like you have to draw that line in the sand and say this is beyond what is reasonable for the head coach to be able to monitor and know. And that's where, to your point, your compliance program comes into place. Are you doing a reasonable job of asserting that all of your staff, and your employees, are like abiding by the guidelines? that you are required to abide by. And that can only go so far, right? There are rogue actions here. And that's, I think, a lot of what this debate has been about is, again, there's some kind of line in the sand where it's like, this is what's reasonable to know. And this is, beyond this is just a weirdo being a weirdo that Michigan can't realistically take responsibility or monitor. For sure. And I mean, there's an article that I saw that was done by oddly enough, Arizona's 247 sports page, I think, because Sean Probably Miller not a coincidence. <laughs> was implicated yeah. using rule 11.1.1 about ways that you can rebut this presumption of head coach responsibility, right? What are your written policies? What is What, if any, active participation do you have in uncovering your compliance programs? What are, you know, what feedback do you actively solicit to see if your programs are functioning properly? How are you? There's a lot of steps that Jim Harbaugh can take 
and may have taken to rebut this presumption. You would so hope Michigan as an institution. So the fact that there is a presumption is not the end-all be-all right. of this evaluation that people are treating it to be. And that's that's all I, I've wanted. I've wanted to speak my piece about that for like a couple of days now, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad I got the opportunity to. Yeah, no, it's an important point, because that is a lot of what's getting thrown out there is uh, all these especially opposing fan bases are now falling back to the argument that, well, actually it doesn't matter if Stallions was a quote-unquote lone wolf because Harbaugh's still responsible. Like, well, kind maybe. Of. Kind of. Right. But if he can establish that he was following the appropriate procedures, then he's got the chance to make that argument and avoid any blowback on him from the NCA, at least potentially. And I guess then that comes back to the strategy that they're taking. We mentioned that they're apparently not pursuing the uh, the, the gray area, you know, third-party scouting defense. Thing, right, defense that we talked about last time. And that's a strategy that they can take. This kind of feels to me, I'm curious about your view on this, but it feels to me a little bit like a plea bargain situation where they're saying, let's talk and figure out if we can come to an agreement here that is, you know, pretty tolerable for us, pretty amenable to both parties, which means no severe penalties for Harbaugh, no severe penalties for Michigan as a football program. But Connor Stallions, you, you get his head on a platter and maybe some other kind of nominal stuff. And if you don't want to go that route, if you want to do this the hard way, where you're going to hit us with lack of institutional control, whatever else, we'll take that route. We'll spin up the legal team and we'll start arguing gray area, you know, compliance. Like we, we've done all that we can of compliance. Like we'll throw every argument we can at you and we'll take this the whole way. And if you want to try to adjudicate this in 2025, fine. We'll see you in two years in court or whatever. Like, is that how you think that they are approaching this? I think that's right. I think that despite what rival fan bases will want you to believe, the the way that this story has developed over the last week, it seems to me that they are more taking it... The NCAA doesn't think this is as serious as the Ohio State fans do. Let's put it that way. Right. Right? And, and Michigan's behavior, I think, is a reflection of that. Because if they were really going death penalty, if they were really go all this shit. Yeah, the death penalty is never happening again, yeah. but all of this shit that's getting thrown out there. It's deranged. But, yeah. like, yeah, I mean, if it was really, you, Michigan would be putting up the walls. And right. that's, that's not the way that they're behaving. And so I, I think directionally what you've said is right. That if I'm reading tea leaves or, you know, trying to look at the writing on the wall, I think directionally what you're saying is right. Yeah. And because of that, to me, I, I still don't think, well, I think there's negligible if any chance that any penalties happen this year certainly not from the NCAA's point of view and I'm of the belief at this point that given what we've established about Connor Stallions and given the evidence that we have heard of or at least the the credible reports that are out there and kind of the way that this is playing out to your point it doesn't seem like there's a lot of like NCAA incentive to really push this hard and turn this into something huge. And I mean, could it with more evidence and like the NCAA would have a credibility problem to, I mean, the NCAA already has a credibility <laughs> a big, problem, big credibility but problem. you know, if, if we're talking about a rule on in-person scouting that they almost repealed two years ago, because they were like, eh, we don't actually think it requires it. it or right. it And even though feels, they didn't repeal it, they put in writing that the reason they were considering it was that, we don't think it offers a substantial competitive advantage or right. significant competitive advantage. Like, if you're really going to come down and kill a program over a rule you almost yeah, repealed two years ago, like, be, be serious. Yeah, that's just you not going to happen. 
Yeah, so. I still think the most likely outcome here is Stallions gets fired, certainly. And he's Definitely. got a show cause where he's never working in college athletics again. That bridge has been fully, fully up in flames. No. But from Michigan's point of view, I don't expect serious Maybe if they here. one day repeal the rule. That's fair. You know yeah. what? Like, it's kind of the same thing as, like, you know, you get your you go to jail for weed and then you get your record expunged once they legalize right. weed. You know what I mean? Like, it, if they ever do repeal the rule, yeah. you could see him making his way back into the sport. But short of that, yeah, he he's probably going to be out of the sport for a long time. He can go work in corporate espionage. Certainly, so uh, yeah, be that'd, be the, that'd be the perfect spot But also, him. like, password protect your shit. Make your Venmo private. He might be too dumb <laughs> for corporate. Be serious. Like, come on. Like, if you grind hard enough you your will find public this venmo and you're like not password protected drive well, we don't know if that was password protected or not we don't well, we can come back to that i guess as we talk about i'm just saying it, you, you know you're like contacting these people and paying cash use a burner phone yeah, watch three episodes better. of the wire and get back to Are you me. taking notes <laughs> a criminal fucking conspiracy like, well, like come on man but anyway whatever yeah i just don't think there's serious punishment coming down the pike here for michigan as an institution or as a football program, I think you're probably talking about a fine probation, maybe nominal scholarship loss, things that are not going to competitively affect the program if it can be established, which it sounds like they're well on the way to doing that. This is really all a Connor Stallion's weirdo thing. Yeah. I mean, Jeremy Pruitt got... 18 level one violations and all they got was a fine and right for actually delivering recruits cash, cash in bags like, like yeah be be for real come on yeah this is all again this is like fanfic from opposing fan bases that are really talking about the scenarios that like <laughs> yeah and i mean the thing about the you know this is i think a segue into our next kind of topic du jour that's related to this is that you know part of the reason that you and I looking at this from where we sit now on Tuesday, the 31st, aren't super concerned about the implications that this has for Jim Harbaugh, you know, the show cause being on the table for him. Any of that stuff is despite reports to the contrary on what was that Sunday night um, that Michigan had rescinded Jim Harbaugh's extension offer. Yeah, it was the Wall Street Journal reported that this had been rescinded and there were immediate reports from the Michigan like state media, basically all the insiders saying this is not accurate. Right. And then as of today, the the wheels are turning again and it seems to be that the contract is back on and perhaps imminent. Yeah, what we got from Chris Ballas earlier today was the report that an extension is, quote, moving forward and quickly. And then later in the day, that was confirmed by John Bacon, who when John Bacon has contract information, it's it's happening imminently. And his report was that the contract is moving forward and would make Harbaugh the highest paid coach in the Big Ten. So we'd be talking about somewhere in the ballpark of $10 million a year. And that means there are actual details that are getting out there. Like this is probably a done deal in the next week. Right. That's not something that you do if you think your coach is going to get show cost. Correct. Now, so... obviously, there are going to be the you know, the standard clauses in there about if there are, you know, major violations, blah, blah, blah. Like, Michigan may very well, if oh, yeah, any punishment, Oh, yeah, the exculpatory, like the, right. yeah, the grounds for termination kind of stuff is all going to be in there no matter what. So it's not a huge right. deal either way. And there probably will be some, like, even if they're negligible, there will be some NCAA penalties coming down here. And so Michigan may very well have the option if they actually wanted to, even under the new contract, of firing Harbaugh for cause. But I think the obvious implication here is that we've done our initial investigation. 
we've had preliminary conversations with the NCA. We don't think this is going anywhere or is going to be anything meaningful. And so we're moving forward and we are just really not concerned. We're ready to get this done and eliminate any lingering questions about where the program is headed in the near term and who's going to be running it. And that's great from Michigan's point of view and from our point of view, obviously. For sure. So again, that just seems like further evidence that Michigan is not particularly concerned about the worst case scenario outcomes here that people are talking about. And that's just part of a trend of kind of like incredibly dumb shit that's out there on the internet right now. If you want to you know, scroll through Twitter or whatever, there have been tweets about how Vegas is involved in this investigation. And it's that, you know, Michigan has been manipulating the games through their use of, you know, their acquisition of illegal. Like That's stupid for like 15 reasons, not the least of them being if Michigan is stealing signals and it's improving their performance, the Vegas line will fucking adjust to that. Right. They it's accounted for in their performance on the field. Duh. Like it didn't. They I don't know. Did they invalidate any bets about the World Series? No. Yeah. That's the other thing is that be, when be so when there have been real. more egregious scandals like the Astros and like the Patriots, like videotaping during games, things that were actual very clear cut violations of all of the rules around all of that in other sports, Vegas never got involved in any of that. Like this is again just pure nonsense. Fanfic. The other one that was great was I believe it was Sunday night. There were reports from an Ohio State fan writer, somebody I can't remember exactly who it was, but that. Michigan had scheduled an emergency board of regents meeting over the weekend to talk about like the direction of the football program. And there was a very clear implication that this was a meeting called to fire Jim Harbaugh and Jordan Acker, one of the regents, right? Retweeted this and said something like, it's really hard to have an emergency board of regents meeting when one of the regents is giving his kids a bath or something like that. And then see you in November, like just immediately debunked in the funniest possible way. Okay. In fairness, to the Ohio State writer, I do feel like that initial report, someone pointed out to me that that initial report did come from Sam Webb. That there was an emergency board of regents meeting? It did. Interesting. It, I had never seen that from Sam Webb. It came from Sam Webb. And I, I saw it from Sam Webb first, frankly, even though I still dunked on that loser because I wanted to. Like, it fits the narrative. It's fine. Right. It, it, this, is, it's, this is the agenda. But like, I saw it. On Sam Webb first. Interesting. I had um, not seen that, actually, before the Ohio State tweet, which yeah. made me... I mean, by that point, people were already debunking it, so it was very evidently yeah, it was fantasy land again. Like, it was just funny. But yeah, it so was funny. I had to do it, but I knew it wasn't like a totally accurate dunking on because I don't think he was the source of the report. I think he, wasn't, he was reading tea leaves on what Sam Webb said. Fair enough. But anyway, there's been plenty of that out there that's just like totally divorced from reality and... A lot of it is funny. A lot of it is, like, obnoxious. Uh, again, it's this fanfic idea of, like, here's how Michigan's, you know, program is, is being destroyed, blah, blah, blah. And anyway, I think we've pretty well covered that a lot of that is... Uh, bullshit. Is bullshit. It's bullshit. What's not bullshit, at least as far as we can tell right now, is it's, the speculation okay, it's kind that, of bullshit. It's speculation, so it's inherently bullshit. I mean, a lot of what we've seen here has been speculation that has been quickly proven true. And, you know, some of that, again, it's hard to tell what's real and what's not right now. But as you mentioned, it, it is factually established here by several entities that the source of all of this information is a private investigative firm. Right. Mm -hmm. And there have been reports out about apparently Ryan Brothers, Ryan Day's brother runs a PI firm in New Hampshire called Fourth and One, Investi uh, Fourth and One Investigations. 
there's another New Hampshire firm that people have mentioned as a possibility as one that cites itself as being involved with NFL and college sports. This is speculation, certainly. But after the Yahoo report on Saturday that Ohio State specifically reached out to the college football playoff before last year's semifinals to find out if in-person scouting of the other semifinal game was legal, there was a pretty clear implication there about where the origins of this were, right? There's that. I mean, that's a pretty clear implication that hmm, Ohio State was asking questions a year ago about in-person scouting and what's allowed and what's not. And then this comes out. And then you mentioned earlier that the rumblings of all of this investigation first came from Ohio State insiders about a month ago. So you put that together, and I don't think it's, I mean, I understand definitionally it is speculation, but at this point, the Occam's razor explanation is that all of this came from Ohio State and that somebody at Ohio State or the institution hired this investigative firm and that's where all this came from, right? I mean, yes. The the speculation about is Day's brother involved? Is it this firm? Is it right. That that's firm? that's entirely speculation. That's, we have no idea that's which made firm. Up. We yeah. don't we don't know any fucking shit about that. But what we do know is that you're right. Ohio State raises this exact question, yep. right, with respect to the college football playoff a year ago, and that story or that that detail is included in one of the stories on on this right yes. on michigan's quote i think it was ross dellinger for yahoo who had this report over the weekend that it was ohio state who raised this question and so why is ohio state suddenly so interested in this question right, right. why are they looking at this question well it's because you see, i mean the the generous interpretation is because they know michigan has been engaged in this it was apparently an open secret in the big 10 that michigan was engaged in this sure. and so they asked about it the less generous interpretation is they're the source of this. I mean, I don't think those are even mutually exclusive. Ohio State might have had the legitimate question of, we've heard teams like Michigan are doing this. Can we also do it? But either way, and again, the fact that the Ohio State insiders had this weeks before anybody at Michigan was talking about it, there's only really one way that happens because the NCAA isn't going and talking to Ohio State about their investigation before they're talking to Michigan about an investigation into Michigan. Yeah, no, I think Somebody that's right. Knew that's the more the if source. there is circumstantial evidence, that is the more that's the stronger circumstantial evidence to me is that how do how are all of the Ohio State insiders ahead of this story? Right. Right? That that's not coincidental. It's happened like six times with each one of these leaks. I mean, like every single time I've gotten some person I've never heard of in my fucking life landing on my timeline because he's been quote tweeted to death by a bunch of Michigan fans trying to dunk on him or whatever. And he's saying like new information about the Michigan yeah, story coming out this evening, coming soon, <laughs> right. like whatever. And then it does. And it's like, they, they all know something, right? They all know the information that is coming. That is not coming from Michigan. Yeah. So, and so at like, <laughs> some point, like, okay, you know, the writing just is, connect the dots is here, right? very much on the wall there. Um, but yeah, that's been the weirdest. I'm dying to know who hired this firm. I think the most logical explanation or the thing that makes the most sense to me is just, you know, there was, this is very funny, actually. Um, 
one of Stallions' recruits that, you know, was doing this on his behalf gave the quote that he got sent to that UMass Penn State game. And he yeah. was like... And then I left at halftime because it was raining and I was like, why the fuck am I doing this? <laughs> Something like that. Amazing. <laughs> so good. Very funny. I don't know why you would watch the Penn State offense either. Then again, they scored like 63 points in that game. So maybe that's not the best example. It was UMass. I don't think the talent... But anyway, yeah, yes. Yeah, the point stands. I just wanted to talk shit about Penn State, which I will do in but oh, We're going to do that more. Later. But, you know, the whole story is wild. But to me, that that is he's using like random people, like maybe students on these campuses. That's like, what it appears to be is mostly students on campus people. who he's just buying a ticket and for. So, I yeah. mean, it seems like either someone saw one of these students doing it and was like, that's suspicious and reported it to whomever retained this investigative firm or (laughs) or right um they went state's witness and they the the person who was actually doing the filming not someone observed it and thought it was suspicious but the person who was doing the filming themselves was like i'm gonna take this to i'm gonna take this to the football program i'm being asked to film right something about this seems off but either way they probably took it to a football program ohio state (laughs) (laughs) you're gonna He's out here trying to get us sued. But no, I mean... Allegedly. Allegedly. You throw those... You put those allegedly's in every other sentence, babe. I'm just saying, it's the Occam's razor explanation here. With it, all of, all the things we've just laid out, it, it is it is very likely that Ohio State was the source of this investigative firm. If it is, I if they were, I'm never going to let them live this down. You got put in a garbage can twice, so you snitched to the NCAA and cried about it. Oh my God. Snitches get stitches, baby. <laughs> When's November 25th? Let's roll. Well, and the year after, right? I mean, we heard from the initial report that Ohio State was aware of Michigan having some sort of sign-stealing apparatus as of 2022. But they, and they can't change their signs. all of them in time for the game. They can't change everything, well, Matt. What Dewan Jones said was, we changed some of our signs, but we couldn't change everything. And I think there's two possible explanations for that sentence. One is that he means that they couldn't change all of the signs, which I don't know why you couldn't, like, just change them. And the other is that he means they changed all of the signs, but they couldn't change physically getting their ass kicked. But either way, Ohio State looks like the biggest bunch of bitch babies of all time, if that's the excuse. Like, we knew about this in 2022. We changed our signs. We still got our ass kicked, even worse than in 2021, at home with a better team. And then... We went out and hired a PI firm because we didn't know what else to do besides go narc and hope somebody else takes them down for us. Never going to let them live it down. That Absolutely would, not. That would be one of the most pathetic things in sports. And if that comes out... I honestly I, think it Michigan will eventually. Michigan should hire an investigative firm to investigate the investigative firm. <laughs> I'm being dead ass. I also Jim think Harbaugh, that's... use some of that 10 milli... Oh to hire God. these dudes. I mean, that's got to be happening everywhere in the SEC right now, right? Like, that's another thing that almost argues against any serious action here. Is, like, if you've got schools hiring private investigative firms to, like, try to buy information that may be incriminating for NCAA investigations, there's going to be an entire ecosystem of private investigative firms just in the SEC. Investigating, ev- like, everybody's going to be investigating everybody else all the time. And it's going to be an absolute shit show. It might happen anyway. It might already be happening. I don't know. But it's kind of an argument for like... Loser oh, narcs. Yeah. Lo- like, no. I hate it so much. <laughs> Terrible. Somebody said... It might have been one of our favorite Twitter follows, Thick Stauskas, who said, 
there's only one thing America hates worse than a cheating winner, and it's a, a, a narking loser or something like that. It's so true. Like, like I kind of think this will come out eventually, and it's going to be humiliating if what we are, if what seems to be the case right now is in fact the case. Especially if Michigan has racked up another W by then. I was just going to say, like, Ryan Day better have those dudes ready because we just saw last week against Michigan State what an aggrieved version of Michigan looks like, and it was something. And, like, Jim Harbaugh might have that dude's head on a stake at 4 p.m. on November 25th. So, again, they better be fucking ready. Inshallah. (laughs) Inshallah. (laughs) So on that note... Now that we've been talking about this for another fucking hour... (laughs) Only 45 minutes, come on. Whatever. No, it is November, as of tomorrow... And we are, you know, two-thirds of the way through the regular season. And this is kind of the point in the year where, like, teams are what they are. You know, the first month, sometimes you have, you know, you have injuries early in the year. You have teams figuring out what they're going to be, new offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, whatever. But teams are what they are right now. And this is, this is it. This is the home stretch. As Harbaugh said, this is when championships are won, right? So we want to spend some time here just talking about the month ahead and, what it means for Michigan, given that, I mean, this is what we've been waiting for all year, right? We looked at the schedule in the offseason and said, this is pretty backloaded. Like, there's not really anybody who should be a threat until November. And again, it's <laughs> it's November. Before we do that, it probably does make sense to spend a little bit of time on last week because we got a few interesting additional data points that are at least somewhat relevant here to what we're going to talk about with Ohio State, Penn State, et cetera. So you want to do your uh, your fun part here where you talk shit about everybody? <laughs> Penn State, baby. What are you Woof. doing? Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I thought about whether or not I was going to talk about Penn State, Indiana as like a trap game or something. And I was like, that Indiana defense, Tom Allen really, really does know how to make shit fucking difficult on people, and that offense does not necessarily look equipped to get past it. But I was like, but the Penn State defense should put the clamps on an offense that right. basically doesn't exist. And so I was like, whatever, this is going to be fine. Penn State's going to be fine. They were not fine. No. I mean, this was a tie game. Well, Penn State was pretty well in control of this game for most. I mean, Indiana was kind of hanging around, but it never really felt like a game that Indiana had a chance to win mm-hmm. until about early in the fourth quarter where Indiana pieces together a touchdown drive. They did a lot uh, Brendan Soresby, Indiana's quarterback, had a pretty impressive game, did a lot of getting out of the pocket, making improv plays. I think there's mm-hmm. a guy at Michigan who can maybe do some th- similar things against Penn State's defense. Yeah, Jack Tuttle. That's what Indiana makes your player makes its <laughs> players into, baby. That's right. Jack Tuttle, baby. But no, I, I thought he had a pretty impressive game. And early in the fourth quarter, Indiana pieces together a touchdown drive to get within three. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is not over. And then Drew Aller... On it's the next series, Penn State gets backed up to like their own, maybe their own eight yard line, something like that. They have a third and long. Drew Aller gets some pressure up the middle and throws an absolutely terrible interception. That's it's one of the worst picks I've ever seen. It's right, it's so his first bad. interception of the season, and it's just an inexplicably awful one where it's like, holy shit, man, you cannot ever make that throw. And so Indiana's set up at about the Penn State 20 yard line. They play this pretty conservatively. I think they run three times and set up the field goal, which they make to tie it at 24. And I saw some debate back and forth about how they played that really conservatively. Maybe you've got to go for the go for the throat there when you've got a chance. I didn't feel strongly either way just because it wasn't like Indiana was like play to play really 
winning this game. They had two huge touchdowns in the first half that kind of put them in position to, you know, do what they did on the fourth quarter. But, I mean, you don't want to take a sack, a turnover, whatever, something there that's going to take you out of the, the chance you have to tie the game. So I didn't think it was an egregious decision. But anyway, they kick the field goal, they tie the game at 24. Penn State gets a couple chunk plays. They get up to just short of midfield, and Drew Aller hits a, a bomb up the sideline to Keandre Lambert-Smith for, their, I think, their first play of the year of over 50 yards, something like that. And they take the lead on the long touchdown pass to make it 31-24. At that point, you're thinking, all right, Indiana's put together a couple touchdown drives. Like, they've, they've done a little bit here. Maybe they can, you know, it's not over. There's about two minutes left. They've got time. And <laughs> the first play of Indiana's drive is an instant nope where they get a guy coming around the edge, drills the quarterback from the blind side, the ball squirts out, and it's one of those where it kind of squibs around as people are trying to recover it, and it goes out the back of the end zone for a safety, and Penn State's up nine and getting the ball, and it's like, well, that was anticlimactic. But anyway, this was a way more competitive game than it should be. I mean, we saw Indiana give Michigan some trouble for 10 minutes. Approximately. And then by the middle of the third quarter, Michigan's up 30, and they've got Jack Tuttle in the game, right? Like, even when they've had some success doing the few things they can do. That's mostly how it's gone for them I mean, this but year. This is one where, again, we talk about this stat all the time, the net success rate. Yeah. That delta was small between well, right, Penn because State Penn State, Indiana. their offense just, we saw it against Ohio State. They didn't have anything down the field. We saw it for three and 3.8 quarters of this game, basically. They couldn't do anything down the field. And you're just going to find yourself in games like that because – if you can't take the top off and everything is hard on offense, if you ever have a game where the other team gets a couple lucky bounces going against you, you're going to be in a dogfight. And that's it just feels like that's what Penn State is at this point. I think we've seen enough. I mentioned teams are what they are. And that's what this Penn State offense is. It is not good. It's got really extreme limitations in what they can do in the passing game. Some of that is Drew Aller. Some of that is the receivers being really incapable of getting separation like 95% of the time. Some of it is the offensive line not being able to hold up long enough to let things develop downfield, but put it all together and, man, it's just another game where you watch Penn State and it's like, how, how are they going to score enough against Michigan to win that game? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't see it. I don't see it either. So, I mean, and that's not to say I don't think Michigan is going to have an easy time moving the ball either, but if no. you're going to – if if you call those defenses a wash and then you're going to line those offenses up next to each other, I know which offense I'm taking. Right. It's Michigan six days a week and twice on Sunday. Then we also watched Ohio State play Wisconsin. They went up to Camp Randall. And another game that it felt like the difference was really two things. Number one, Wisconsin's defense structurally is not well situated to handle Ohio State's desire to run outside. And so – we got a lot better um, – they, they, the showing was a lot better on the ground for Ohio State than you've become accustomed to, Travion Henderson. Right, they had Henderson outside. back. Yeah, and that helps a lot with his – even though he's he's got some limitations in terms of his ability to run between the tackles and actually, like, break tackles and do some of the things that Mich- – like Blake Corum in particular and Hassan Haskins before him were so good at. But when you can get him in space on the edge, he can be a, a huge play threat, and that's something you have to account for that – Wisconsin struggled with a little bit in this game. And the other thing was Marvin Harrison Jr. Like, it just feels like those two things were the difference in the game, or otherwise these were, like, two kind of 
evenly matched team. Like it just felt again, you know, last week when you're watching right. them, when when you're watching Ohio State, Penn State, you were like, these teams look the same except, except one Marvin of them Harrison. Marvin Harrison Jr. And I felt a little bit like that this week, except it wasn't just Marvin Harrison Jr. It was also Henderson because of his ability to run outside. And Wisconsin plays that three four, right? Yeah, and I was going to say Wisconsin also lost Braylon Allen just before halftime. And then their offense really went in the tank in the second half. It just didn't. It did never feel like they had enough. They strung together that one drive to tie they, they it. They did. Up yes, they tied the game early in, early in the early second in the half, thir- third quarter. Yeah, yeah, early in the third quarter, and then after that, it was like eh, they don't have it. Yeah, I mean, playing their backup quarterback already, and then being down Braylon Allen, and they were already down Ches Malusi. I mean, they were down into the dregs of their skill position depth chart, and at that point, like the fact that it felt like a kind of even game is kind of an indictment of Ohio State, frankly, because mm-hmm. the talent should not <laughs> – the talent was not fairly even. Yeah. But the they other, just didn't ha- – Wisconsin just didn't have enough offensively to really hang in. The other interesting note here was that uh, Kyle McCord threw two pretty bad interceptions in this game. He did. And I don't recall if both of them were against – Zone like when Wisconsin was in zone coverage, but one of them certainly was. Yeah, well, the first one he was rolling out. I think this was uh, maybe around the 15 yard line. Ohio State had just gotten a first down on a, a Wisconsin personal foul after a third and short stop. A third and two, they run up the gut and they get stuffed, and then Wisconsin takes a personal foul to give them the first down. I think around the 15. And the very next play, McCord slips out of the pocket, rolls to the right, and tries to hit somebody just inside the pylon. Except he's got. I mean, he's basically bracketed, and he throws it right to the linebacker who's cutting underneath him, which, like, what do you do? Like, you can't make that throw in that situation. And then the second one was more of a, a normal situation where he's trying to hit Marvin Harrison on a post, and the safety sees it and just cuts right in front of it. That one was definitely zone, right? I think cover three, where the safety's kind of in center field and just reads his eyes. And, and, and again, it's he's got one guy who he knows can make plays and who he wants to go to run some cover three so yes, if you're getting got by cover three that's a, a little bit of an interesting development right? that's the thing about the ohio state offense right now is it just feels i mean you said it's that they have marvin harrison and that's really what it comes down to is it feels like the vast majority of their successes on offense are just marvin harrison beating somebody and getting open or teams trying to play complex zones so they don't have man-to-man on Marvin Harrison and somebody busting and him getting wide open but ultimately it's Marvin Harrison doing Marvin Harrison things getting open and Kyle McCoy taking advantage of that and when that's not happening the offense is very very clunky because Kyle McCoy is not very good they still can't run the ball between the tackles they can get outside of that a little bit and Cade Stover I think is a pretty good tight end he's had a, a nice year where I will say even when Harrison do, isn't doing Harrison things or when teams are really blanketing him, there's been some opportunity to hit over the middle where the safeties aren't because of Harrison. But it, it's just so clunky that, I mean, against Wisconsin, against Penn State, like I know these are good defenses, but guess what? Michigan's got a pretty good defense too. And I don't think Marvin Harrison by himself is going to be enough to beat Michigan. Yeah, and the other thing is the protection is still very bad. Yeah, Ohio I mean, we State. saw the stat again in this game where Josh Simmons was getting abused at left tackle, and they pointed out that he has, in the last year and a half, basically since the start of the 2022 season, he's taken the most penalties of any tackle on FBS. Yeah, it's And that's rough. pretty indicative of what's going on. And when you have a quarterback who's kind of shaky and a left tackle who can't hold up against decent edge guys and an interior line that can't block for the run game, like all of these things just 
come together in a way that's like, eh, there are some real issues here. Again, whenever Marvin Harrison isn't doing Marvin Harrison things, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of Wisconsin, the Big Ten West is just a shit show right now. I mean, it could be almost anybody comes out of there right now, except for Purdue and Illinois. You've got Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, and Nebraska currently in a four-way tie at three and two in conference play. I think Minnesota is the only team that technically controls its own destiny because they beat Iowa and they still play Wisconsin. And they beat Nebraska at the beginning of the year. Remember that horrific game in the, the season yeah, opener? I remember. For, I mean, for tiebreaker scenarios, that's, right, that's yes. good for us. I mean, Minnesota coming out of uh, beating, knocking off Wisconsin and coming out of that is, is good for us, right? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Minnesota also plays Ohio State which means they've probably got the most certain November loss of any of those teams. For the most part, everybody else is playing in the West. Okay. So Minnesota's got a chance, but they're set, they're in kind of a disadvantageous position from the way the schedule is set up. Northwestern technically still has a chance as well. They are a game back, but, I mean, it's Northwestern. So anyway, this is just – it Put feels like – respect on the team that knocked off Maryland <laughs> they last week. They did off Maryland, which got its <laughs> – Every year, somehow. Maryland is clockwork. October, Maryland, they start to fall apart. November, Maryland, they fully fall apart. Yeah. They just, they are exactly what they always are. But anyway, this is just, it feels like the perfect way for this division to go out. It's go full stupid or go home, and we're on track for full stupid here, which, by the way, Brian Ferentz, we haven't talked about that yet, but. He got fired, but it was really weird because they just announced that he would not be returning after the season. It's weird to get, like, preemptively fired. Well, and it was announced by the athletic department, and what's been coming out from some of the Iowa writers is that this was not a Kirk Ferentz decision. This was, over his head, the athletic director stepping in and saying, we're firing Brian Ferentz regardless of what your feelings are. And I guess Kirk Ferentz had his press conference today. Normally it's player availability and then, like, a rotation of assistant coaches and then Kirk Ferentz. He announced yesterday that he would be the only voice for the program this week, and he made some comments around the lines of, along the lines of, "This is not how I've ever handled things before," and he sounds very disenchanted. Like I think there's a real possibility that Kirk Ferentz is not back at Iowa, because there's some very obvious tension there about the way this has played out. Kirk Ferentz has been the coach at Iowa for my whole life, basically. Correct, and man, it's it's like, I get it that when you're in that situation and somebody's coming in over your head to make decisions, but also like. Did he really, like, is this going to be it? Is he going to, you know, define his career based on Brian Ferentz as Iowa's offensive coordinator after three straight years of having among the worst offenses in the country, not just Power 5? But, like, there is no logical, justifiable argument for Brian Ferentz continuing to be employed. So, like, it's wild that this seems to be the hill that he he might die on. But it kind of seems like that's the case, which it's a little bittersweet. I mean... Like, I feel a little bit bad for Iowa fans in the way that this has gone for the last few years. Also, it's very entertaining for us in that Iowa is such a, a hilarious extreme at, at both on both sides of the ball. They're not coming close to 25. I mean, we've talked oh, about Oh, no, this, I think they're at 17-ish right now, something like ball. that, per game. Yeah, they, they've got to average something like, like 32. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> right, like there's no chance they're hitting the, the benchmark. So, like, yeah, it's... It's a weird situation there. I don't know what's going to happen, but it it does seem possible that this is the end for Kirk Ferentz based on the way this is playing out, which, like you said, it's been your whole life. I don't even know what a non-Kirk Ferentz Iowa looks like. I can't even remember that. 
So it's uh, it's going to be interesting if that's the way it goes down here at the end of the year. In other news, we were looking at the Big 12 in which Oklahoma got knocked off by Kansas. And Kansas is just fun to me. They always, Kansas is they, so fun. I mean, those Lance Leipold offenses. Kansas is like Big 12 Purdue. Like, they, they have that kind yeah. of giant killer with a fun offense, or at least, you know, the Jeff Brown version right, of Purdue. Yeah. Not the version of Purdue we are going to see this week. But, you know, Jeff Brown's Purdue had that, what did they call them, the spoiler makers, right? Yeah. And they had that kind of fun offense that can get a little difficult to manage that, you know, sometimes kills a giant or two. And that's what Kansas feels like, except it's much more sustained. Like what Lance Leopold is doing there is very impressive. It's unbelievable. I mean, he is, uh, I don't know what his, you know, aspirations are, but he's going to have options for bigger jobs if he wants them. But uh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Big 12 and what it means. I think they're probably in the most precarious spot of any of the Power Five conferences right now in terms of its champion necessarily getting into the playoff. Because I don't think there was a ton of, I don't think there was a ton of buy-in with Oklahoma even after beating Texas. They didn't, you know, automatically launch into the top two or three in the polls the way Texas did after beating Oklahoma. And so, with the way Texas has been the last few weeks, and with the way Oklahoma has been for the last few weeks, where it kind of felt like somebody was going to get them. I don't know if a 12 and one big 12 champion necessarily gets into the playoff. So that's kind of an interesting position for them. And one where I think somebody is going to have to really, really impress in November and in the big 12 championship game to have that, to make that argument, assuming everything else kind of hold, kind of holds chalk. Like there could be chaos sure everywhere else. And you know, maybe this all ends up being moot, but anyway, I was going to transition then to, to talking a little bit about the, the uh, pac 12, which is an interesting situation as well because Washington's obviously still undefeated there, but they continue to like walk between the raindrops is what I called it on Twitter, where it's for the last month now, they've played basically dead even games with Arizona, Arizona State, and now Stanford, in addition to the win over Oregon in a game Oregon probably should have won. And I don't know, at some point, just like with Oklahoma, when you play enough of those games, you're almost always going to get got, right? Like it almost always happens. Maybe it's by Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game if they end up with a rematch. Oregon, man, they went on the road and just wrecked Utah, which, you know, Utah doesn't have much of an offense this year without Cam Rising, but that's the kind of team where that just doesn't happen to them. Like, they're so well coached and their defense is so good that when somebody whips their ass, it, it means something. And that's what Oregon's done to basically everybody this year, other than Washington. And even in that game, they you know outgained uh, outgained Washington, had a couple scoring chances that they couldn't finish. And I, I don't know if you ask me right now who I would be most worried about coming out of the Pac-12 in a hypothetical playoff matchup, I would definitely take Oregon over Washington. I don't know if you agree with that, but yeah, that's interesting. I saw a stat circulating about Michael Penix. Mm-hmm. And you discredited it even after I showed it to you because you were like, Serena, that feels cherry-picked to me. But it was basically that when you like isolate him when he's not in play action, he's just not as good. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like as a pure pocket passer. I don't know. Is it wrong to still be skeptical a little bit of Michael Penix? Because I kind of am. He's been a little shaky the past couple weeks. I mean, still very good. 
Yeah. But a little bit like Caleb Williams, actually, with the right, way I'm that... I'm skeptical of his ass, too. <laughs> right. Uh, the reason I was skeptical of that, it wasn't so much that I thought it was, like, cherry-picked necessarily. It might be cherry-picked, but it was more that some sometimes when I see, like, selected stats where it's like, oh, this is an interesting way of thinking about it, you kind of have to do the eyeball test of, like, okay, who is high up here? And does it kind of logically compute that, like, these guys are good? <laughs> the guys who are at the top of the list, do they make sense? Mm-hmm. And there were some guys there where I was like, some of these guys are bad. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. But that makes it kind of hard to make judgments about whether that number by itself means a lot. Yeah. And then when you strip it out and look at the overall numbers, Michael Penix is you know just behind J.J. McCarthy and Jaden Daniels as like one of the three or four best quarterbacks in the country by almost every metric. So I, I discounted it a little bit, but I do think it's fair to you know to be looking at Washington and having a little bit of you know a little bit of side eye like i'm not quite sure yeah after I've got some side especially eye the arizona state and stanford games like arizona's a quality team they're just outside the top 25 and they've knocked off two ranked teams in a row and obviously oregon it, i mean like i just said i think oregon is you know a, a legit playoff level team and to beat them it does mean something but two weeks in a row playing arizona state and stanford in games where both of those teams could have if not should have beat you that's concerning I think that's fair. One other thing I wanted to highlight was this was just a fun thing that came up. You mentioned Jeff Brown at Purdue, and we saw uh, Louisville this last week. I think the statistic was that by beating Duke, they accomplished having ranked wins in consecutive weeks, like wins over ranked teams in consecutive weeks for the first time since 2006. And that just brought back a fun memory because that was back in the Chad Henney, Mike Hart days. And I specifically remember that there were like a lot of All-America teams back then where Chad Henney was on the list, and another guy who was on those lists was then-Louisville quarterback Brian Brom. And obviously Louisville's coach now is Jeff Brom. And so it's just a little bit of like, you know, full circle kind of stuff for like the Brom family. And like, wow, that was back when Louisville seemed like they were kind of on the brink of really becoming kind of like what Clemson became a few years later. And then they really trailed off. And I don't know if they're you know headed there under Jeff Brom, but... They're having a real good year, so it's just kind of a fun, like, you know, connecting the dots moment. Yeah. So we're on to Michigan. We're on to November Let's football. do it. Um, as we record this breaking news, we have the first college football playoff rankings. Okay. Right? What do we got? it is Tuesday night. I would like you to guess the top four in order. Okay. Well, I actually tweeted just before we started recording this that, for one thing, I'm really interested to see where this lands because... I think it's interesting that what seem to be the two consensus best teams are Georgia and Michigan, but neither one of them has a compelling win. And the teams that do have compelling wins, Ohio State, Florida State, Washington, have been kind of shaky in a lot of their games outside of their impressive wins. So They've I, been shaky in their impressive wins. Even to some extent in their impressive too. wins, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I'm really curious I'm to see... I'm you, Columbus. <laughs> just to see how this shakes out. But what I said was my projection was number one Ohio State on the back of wins over Notre Dame and Penn State. They've probably got the best set of wins. Number two, Michigan. Number three, Georgia. I think they get lumped together in the fact that, again, they've been the consensus best teams, and neither one of them has a particularly strong schedule. So I think in some order, they're probably one, two, two, three. And then I think behind that, you probably have Florida State, which I think has been a little bit more impressive than Washington. So I'll slot Florida State at four, Washington at five. That's my 
best guess. You basically nailed it. Ohio State is one. Georgia is two. Okay. Michigan is three. Florida State is four. Washington is five. Okay. That's your top five. That was pretty close. I mean, for me, it was, like I said, I think Georgia and Michigan go together. I think Michigan has, by every advance metric, they've been better than Georgia in some cases substantially. So I thought that might get Michigan ahead of they're, Georgia. They're totally deferring to last two national titles. I think that's right. Yeah. Georgia gets yeah. a lot of the benefit of the doubt. And I mean, hard to argue, hard to argue with yeah. that. Yeah. So that's, that's fair. But uh, I, I, yeah, like I said, I was really interested to see where they landed with some of the like discrepancy between resume and performance. Yeah. And it sounds like they've kind of split the baby a little bit there with Ohio State at the top and then Georgia, Michigan, and then the next two teams down I'd the pecking curious. order. I'd be curious. They haven't done the thing because, you know, they always do the thing where they like ask the committee yeah. people, they interview them for like half an hour or whatever after they release the things. I'd be curious. I know one of the questions is going to be, oh, yeah. did you consider the sign stealing allegations and the, you know, the thing against Michigan? I'd be curious to see what they say. I think you pointed out to me that they have an explicit rule not to consider that stuff when well, I guess it's are... not an explicit rule but ESPN had an article I think sometime late last week addressing this very topic in a question about the first playoff rankings and they got some quotes from either former committee members or current committee members or I think it may have actually been a mix and the consensus takeaway was there are going to be some people who are thinking about this but the guidance we've gotten is that unless there are actual NCAA punishments in place, i.e. a postseason ban that's already been implemented, we are not to consider ongoing investigations as part of our rankings. We are just looking at, on the field, who are the best teams. That's our mandate. And so I'm sure you'll get an answer similar to that from whoever is the, you know, the guy who gets on TV and spouts the, the talking points. But All right, here's a trivia question. I'm giving you a trivia question. This is a tweet from Brett McMurphy because Kansas was ranked in these CFP rankings today. Um, So that's that's fascinating. I I love that for them. But Kansas was ranked. And so this tweet from Brett McMurphy identifies the teams who have never been ranked. There are only five teams in Power Five. Power five only. That have never that been That have ranked. never appeared in the college football playoff rankings at all. Can you identify them? Wow. All right. Well, I think one has to be Vanderbilt. Definitely. That's the pretty easy one. Yeah, they're ass. Some of the other ones that immediately come to mind have actually had some pretty good seasons. Where, you know, I would think like Iowa State. Obviously, I had to run a couple of years ago. And made it to the Big 12 championship game. I assume they were ranked, but mm-hmm. that would be the kind of program that you would think would be unlikely to have ever been ranked. So as I think about some of the obvious ones, that's tricky. I would say... I'm going to guess Rutgers. Rutgers has not been ranked. Indiana's another one, but 2020, I kind of suspect that they did get ranked at some point because they were like 8-1, and one, right? I, mm-hmm. I think... So Indiana has been ranked. There is another Big Ten team. Uh, how about... I feel like the Big Ten West has to have somebody. It is not the Big Ten West. It's not the Big Ten West. Every team in the Big Ten West has appeared at some point. So it's got to be Maryland then. It's Maryland. Obviously, Michigan State has been ranked in the playoffs. Right. And, I mean, you just said Indiana hasn't been. So Maryland is probably not one that I would have gotten. They've had enough like 
eight or nine win years, I kind of expected that they would have slipped in at some point. So there are two more. One Big 12. Okay. One Pac-12. For the Pac-12, I was going to guess Washington State. No. Not Washington State. Interesting. How about Colorado? No. Whew. Man. Uh, what was it like? Twenty sixteen that we played Colorado, and then they ended Colorado up winning up, the ended division. Colorado ended up like twenty, uh, yeah, like ten and three, I think that year. So they probably got ranked. They must have, yeah, at some point, right? Yeah. How about Arizona State? No, Arizona State's been ranked. I figured they would have. I mean, that was why I guess Washington State and Colorado first. Who am I missing here? This should be pretty Cal. obvious. Nerd school, yeah, Cal. yeah. And then one more in the Big Twelve. One more in the Big Twelve. Uh, let's see. Kansas, Kansas State, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. Maybe Texas Tech. That's right. Okay. Texas Tech. You got That's it. another one like Maryland that wouldn't have immediately come to mind because they've had a bunch of like eight win seasons where it seems like they probably slipped into the top 25 at some point, but apparently not quite. Yeah. So those are those are the five teams that have never appeared. I don't know. Pac-12 little, one was a struggle. Little trivia aside. I probably shouldn't have been. Like you said, Cal's been pretty bad for a while. Right. But. Like when's Cal getting in there? It's like Stanford, you know, there was like Stanford was still good until like 2014-15. Well, right. So you, you could see that they see that they would yeah. have appeared in the earlier years of the playoff. So, yeah. And I mean, Maryland is funny because it's like we just said that all they do is fall apart. By the time the college football playoff rankings roll around, I guess which that's is it. Late yeah. In the season, right? They go like, four and zero, oh, and then by Halloween. the time the playoffs come out, they're five and three or whatever. Right. And, yeah. It's Halloween, and we're getting our first rankings. Right. So yeah, it's very on brand for Maryland to have fallen apart by now. Well, that's interesting. I mean, obviously these are ultimately irrelevant because you know Michigan and Ohio State, and like Michigan's going to play Penn State, and they're going to play Ohio State, and those things are going to sort themselves out at the end of the year. Maybe this becomes relevant if you know we're talking about a bunch of 11 and one teams and you know splitting hairs between as of right now people are putting michigan ahead of florida state and washington and michigan certainly has a more compelling schedule down the stretch so you know maybe those things matter but anyway it's really more curiosity at this point than anything else on that note looking ahead here we've got purdue penn state november maryland and ohio state down the stretch and earlier in the year, or even up until about a few weeks ago, I think we had come to the agreement that we were maybe marginally more worried about Penn State on the road than Ohio State at home. Has that changed for you? Yes. I think it has for me, too. Penn State just, they don't look scary. I know that they... I'm I'm willing to forgive this Indiana game as a letdown game. You know, you you go to Ohio State, you feel like you've got your best shot in forever. You still don't do it. I, I'm inclined to to get it, but man, I just they don't scare me at all. Like there's really like one and a half position groups there that scare me. It's like the ends and the DBs. There's like one and a half positions group that really scare right. me. And that's not enough. It's, it's just not enough. Yeah, I mean, the defense is unquestionably very good. But that offense right now is down to 31st in SP+, which is as low a unit as exists in the top 10 other than number 10 LSU has the 47th ranked defense. So that is, when we're talking about playoff contenders and teams that can actually realistically beat Michigan— that is a weakness. 
Like that's sure. an actual weakness. For sure. No question. And yeah, just, I mean, we talked about it before. The inability to drive the ball down the field, at some point you have to be able to threaten that. And their receiving core has shown no ability to do that. Their running game, like they have talented running backs, but the interior line can't consistently move the guys off, move guys off the ball, and they're certainly not going to do that against Chris Jenkins, Mason Graham, Kenneth Grant. I mean, yeah, it's, it, it is really hard to see how we keep talking. We've said this almost every week, and I'm probably going to say it again in about 15 minutes, but it's hard to see how their offense generates enough against Michigan to win unless that is a Michigan kind of implosion on the other side of the ball, mm-hmm. like multiple turnovers, setting up short fields, that kind of thing. Right. So even on the road, I mean, it's not a night game, right? I think that's a, a big noon kickoff game. I think that's is the right. expectation at least. Yeah. So yeah, even on the road, it just feels like that team is not threatening enough on one side of the ball. I, I don't think having a, a very good defense is enough against Michigan when they've, like you said, they can match you on that side of the ball. And then on offense, they've also got one of the best units in the country. One that's, I think, sixth currently in SP plus and number one in the country on FEI which values efficiency. I think I've explained this before. FEI values efficiency a little bit more than explosiveness. Right. And SP Plus values explosiveness a little bit more than efficiency. So you see some interesting discrepancies there as you look at offense, defense, and and where teams shake out. But regardless, Michigan has one of the best offenses in the country to match with a defense that is at least approximately the equivalent of Penn State's. So Mm -hmm. I I agree. That game has gotten less threatening for me Michigan can certainly lose. Like, there's enough overlap there that you if Michigan— You can always lose. Right. If Michigan has a bad day and Penn State has a good day, it is possible. Like, that's probably not true against Bowling Green, right? Yeah. <laughs> Michigan couldn't lose Michigan that Michigan had a bad day, and they still didn't lose. And they still won—right. Yeah. They still had, you know, the starters out by, like, late in the third quarter. That's not true against Penn State. Penn State's good enough to win that game. But it's going to take a lot of things going right for them that, just from sort of a probabilistic standpoint, it's unlikely. Ohio State— I think the difference there is that even though their offense has come in significantly under expectations, their defense appears to have improved enough that they've kind of balanced that gap out. And if Ohio State has a defense that's on par or you know roughly on par with Michigan, that's a little bit of a different dynamic, I think, than what we've seen the past few years with that Ohio State defense. Now, that's based on what we know right now, which is built up on games against a lot of not very good quarterbacks and not very good run games. Notre Dame, I think, is the closest comp to Michigan that Ohio State has seen this year. And Notre Dame moved the ball on the ground quite well in that game. They got away from it late, and obviously they had a defensive collapse in the last couple minutes. They got bend but don't break, and that's exactly what Ohio State is trying to do. So, like, how much are you going to credit that to Ohio State's defense versus Notre Dame's offense? But our offense is better than And to some extent, you might be able to get away with that, right? Like, if Ohio State plays Michigan and they get into a game where Michigan doesn't finish well in the red zone, they have to kick three field goals, like, that could be the difference in that game. Again, these teams are close enough that that sort of thing could be the deciding factor. Yeah, I'm going to chime in here with an update from CFP chair Boo Corrigan. Boo (laughs) Corrigan. Sure, that's a real name. Says it's the committee's job to rank the teams. Also said that they see the investigation into Michigan as an NCAA issue, not a college football playoff issue. Yep. So confirmed. I mean, as you you discussed, that's basically exactly what he said. 
yeah, that was inevitable. And uh, yeah, there's nothing that's going to come out of this. It's going to affect Michigan's involvement in the CFP this year. They're All going right. to earn their spot on in the field or they're not. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Let's but, talk about Purdue. Are we ready? Yeah, I was just going to point out also that uh, with the results of the last couple of weeks, as it relates to Ohio State and Penn State, there was one other thing about Ohio State's defense, which is there was a stat that came out during the uh, the Wisconsin game that they're one of three defenses in the country that has not allowed a play of 40-plus yards this year. So they've been able to do that and been able to play that bend but don't break defense. But, again, can you do that against Michigan when the last two years we've seen that they really can't play Michigan's run game straight up? You have to bring safeties down to the box or you get paved. You have to make a decision, and they've made that decision. Is that different this year? We don't know, but that's going to be the big question, I think, about Ohio State's defense and whether it actually is against each other on Michigan's level. Yeah. And then from an SP-plus standpoint, the lines have sort of converged there a little bit. I mean, Penn State early in the year was, when you account for home field advantage, I think Michigan was like a four-point favorite over Penn State and more like a seven-point favorite over Ohio State. Now that looks a little bit different because as Penn State has dropped – that line, Michigan against Penn State, is down to about seven or seven and a half. And against Ohio State, with Michigan's home field advantage, it's also about six and a half to seven. So it's, it's close, but SP Plus, even accounting for home field advantage, agrees that right now Ohio State looks like the slightly bigger threat than Penn State. And I, I think that kind of lines up with our eye test assessment to this point. Yeah. But On yeah. to Purdue, who is not a threat. No, we didn't talk a lot about them here in the in the last segment, but uh, they're yeah, just they're not, not very good. good. No, <laughs> they are two and six and ranked eighty second in SP plus, which coincidentally is one spot ahead of UNLV at six and two. It's also about ten spots ahead of Northwestern and Indiana, but about ten spots below Michigan State. So, yeah, this is very much a, a year zero rebuild situation for Ryan Walters. I mean, this team just. It's in a it's in a pretty rough spot right now. It's going to take some time. They're also coming off a thirty-one to fourteen loss to Nebraska this past weekend, which was their third straight loss. And their only Big Ten win this year is a forty-four to nineteen beatdown of Illinois, which has really totally imploded this year in Walter's absence. Which maybe is a good sign for Purdue's future that he left and they kind of immediately fell apart. But not like this week future yeah like <laughs> like, like 2025 maybe it's yeah, gonna take fair. a minute but yeah in terms of what's interesting in this game if you remember last year illinois was the one team that really was able to play like straight man coverage with its corners and able to keep michigan's offense in check some of that was blake Corum getting hurt some of that was having top 10 pick devin witherspoon at corner i mean he was an elite player they also had two other mid-round picks in the secondary and two of the best defensive linemen in the big 10 Walters is still trying to do the same stuff, but he's doing it without all of those things that he had at Illinois, yeah. which is a challenge, to say the least. I mean, he tried doing it against Marvin Harrison Jr., too. And, right. Like, Purdue played Ohio State a couple weeks ago, right? And and it went, as you would expect, with inferior athletes playing man coverage like, against Ohio State. I was State. like, buddy, was... Devon Witherspoon is not back there. I'm yeah. like, what are we doing? But, I mean, if that's what you're going to do and that's what you're going to build, like, that Purdue team wasn't going to beat Ohio State anyway. So you're just you're going to run your stuff and get it implemented and try to build that in to the players you have the best you can and, and just let it develop over time. So 
That's fine. I do think Purdue has a couple of interesting guys in the secondary right now. They have Cam Allen, is a pretty good nickel, who's been around forever. I think he's in either his fifth or sixth year there. At safety, they've got Sanusi Kane and Dylan Thieneman, who are both having pretty good years statistically. They're Purdue's leading tacklers, which is nice for them, but also anytime your safeties are your two leading tacklers, it's not a very good sign for your defense that everything is getting to the safety level. To the level. safety level, yeah. Yeah, Kane is more of a box safety, I think, so that kind of makes sense that he's involved a lot. But, it's uh, again, it's, it's not a great sign. They do also have a legit edge rusher in Kydra Jenkins. He has seven sacks and 11 and a half tackles for loss on the year. I thought he was already pretty decent the past couple of years, but he, I think, is one of those guys who just has seem, seems to have taken a real step forward. So this is probably the best edge rusher Michigan is going to see this year who doesn't play at Penn State. Okay. So that's well, something. Up. Yeah, that's something to keep that's an eye out for. That's good. We got Penn State next week anyway. So That's right. And probably Chop Robinson. I think he missed this last week's game with a concussion that he suffered against Ohio State. Haven't heard exactly what his status is, but you would imagine by the time Penn State-Michigan rolls around in another week and a half that we've got, he's probably back for that. So, yeah, this is a good kind of test run for the tackles against a a really legit edge player. Um, As far as Purdue's defense on the whole, they've been okay against the run. They do play a 3-4 like Illinois has been doing the last couple years with Walters. They have some very big dudes across the front. They're really playing three defensive tackle-shaped guys. Okay. And that's held up okay. They haven't played any particularly good run games. So it's kind of hard to, you know, to parse out exactly what's good and what isn't. But they haven't really gotten beat up by anybody. It's been a lot of, like, 3.8 to 4.4 yards a carry kind of games. Again, those aren't particularly good run offenses, so Michigan should be able to do more than that. But... I think you would agree with me that Michigan's run game hasn't been so dominant this year that when they go up against okay run defenses, it's like, oh, they're going to steamroll this team. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. The run game conundrum with Michigan is interesting. It's probably a conversation for another time. But it's very funny that teams are still overplaying it, I think, a little bit. And it's like, but your option is J.J. McCarthy. Like the, they seem to be it, still willing to take that chance that wild. JJ will have an off day. Like JJ McCarthy is there, and you're like, but they we're not they can't run on us. Like that's wild. They yeah. re- whatever. It, well, we've talked about like Michigan this year can allow teams to choose the way they want to get beat. If you want to play that way, JJ will beat you. And they seem to be mostly taking that and saying, maybe JJ has an off day. Maybe he has a Bowling Green day, and we can stay in the game. Because if we play light in the box, we're gonna get wrecked. So I don't know that it's necessarily the wrong choice, but it is the choice that they're making, and it's one Michigan has been able to take advantage of in the past game. So I guess as it relates to Purdue, this is not, again, 2022 Illinois personnel, but I am kind of interested to see how they look against this sort of defense, just since we saw Walters have more success last year than anybody else did, and they are going to try to force J.J. and the receivers to make some plays one-on-one. I think the nice thing here is that, again, they can they can beat you how you want to get beat. And also, as we just saw against Michigan State, if you want to man up against this passing game, that means putting safeties on Colston Loveland and A.J. Barner and you know Donovan Edwards on linebackers. And that's stuff that's just not going to go well, given the matchups there. We saw how that went for Michigan State. And I think that's something that Michigan can lean on against teams that want to play this way more so than they could last year, especially with the way J.J. has been playing and the way he's been able to get out of the pocket, which anytime you're playing man, that's also a risk. You've got guys, you know, turning and running downfield, vacating space. So there are a lot of things Michigan can do here, and I think they'll be fine. 
The other side of the ball is honestly less interesting because this is just another Big Ten West team that it's not fun Jeff Brown Purdue anymore. Like you said earlier, it's decent defense, really bad offense. They are 86th in SP plus on offense. So they're right in the vicinity of Nebraska and Minnesota. And we saw how those games went, right? (laughs) Purdue has not scored more than 20 points against a power five team this year. And it's kind of been holistic. It's they brought in Hudson Card as a transfer at quarterback, and he's been kind of disappointing. He's at about six yards an attempt with eight touchdowns and seven picks. He has spread the ball around pretty well, but their nominal number one guy is TJ Sheffield, who we saw last year. He was the number three guy on that team, way behind you know Charlie Jones, aka Chuck Sizzle. Not real. I we <laughs> someone needs to make Gus Johnson stop. Actually. Maserati Marv. No. <laughs> the thing about Maseratis is like you know there are there are nicer cars that start with M right. Like the Maybach is right there. Like, I I don't know what yeah. you're doing. Right. <laughs> <That's fair. laughs> like it's I, nice, but you could do better. It's just. Gus, we, we got to relax, okay? He's also rolling it out like eight times, like then every again, reception. Like, come like, on. Like, Maybach doesn't exactly like roll off. Am I even pronouncing that right? Is that how you pronounce that? I think that's right. I've heard it like Maybach or Maybach. I've heard it both ways, but like, I don't know. The, like, I, like, I've heard Maybach music, right? Like in rap yeah. songs or whatever. I don't actually know if that's right or wrong. But the point stands. It's right yeah. there, right? It doesn't roll off the tongue like Maserati. Maserati is just like, it's a little easier it's, to it's say. It's smoother, but yeah. But also, I do not need to hear it every time Marvin Harrison <laughs> catches a pass. I, I just don't. Right. We don't need the, the nickname that you just made up like two weeks ago every single time Marvin like, Harrison makes one of his eight catches a game. Stop trying totally to make like, fetch happen. It's <laughs> exactly right. Like, it's just, I can't do it. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. No, that's totally fair. Uh, and then on the ground, they've got Devin Mockaby around still. And he's been okay, but he just isn't really a difference maker. He's not a guy you can rely on. He's at 4.7 yards a carry for the year, but well under last year's pace in terms of yards per game. Mm-hmm. I haven't, honestly, I haven't watched enough of Purdue to have like a great sense of their offensive line play, but last year they were definitely winning more in spite of it than because of it. And they've had to replace, I think, three starters from that group. The tackles especially are guys who to me at least from what I've seen, have not looked particularly good, they're going to have a bad time against Michigan's end. So I think we should be able to see Michigan generating some pretty frequent pressure here and getting card into some uncomfortable situations. And obviously that's not even accounting for what the defensive tackles are able to do. I mean, they've dominated everybody they've gone up against this year, and I don't think that's likely to change against this offensive line. So again, we, we say this almost every week, but it just doesn't look like there's a whole lot that Purdue is going to be able to do offensively I mean, they haven't done well against anybody. I mentioned they haven't crossed 20 points against a Power 5 defense this year. Maybe they can get like do a little of the early dink and dunk stuff that Indiana did, grind out a drive somehow or you know have something in the bag that they can get a trick play and, and get a score on the board. But really anything beyond that, like double digits, feels pretty optimistic from my point of view. Yeah, that seems right. So I don't know how they put enough points together to make this interesting for very long unless we get some really weird shit, which is always possible in college football. But i got to say, Michigan's been almost entirely immune to that this year, right? We've not really seen... No, like, they've been we've not seen professional. That kind of game. Right. They've been workmanlike in every way. What was it Roman Wilson said today? There was a quote that was going around where he said, they showed us a picture of a buffalo in the snow, and it's just chill. It doesn't care. That's us. We're the buffalo in the snow. That had to be Jim Harbaugh, right? He's on one. <laughs> every metaphor is like somehow more Jim Harbaugh than He's the last. He's giving Braveheart. He's giving <laughs> the corn growing. We're field corn, not houseplants. I just, he, someone needs to 
like actually don't rein him in. No, he's perfect no, this exactly is as he is. It, leave him be. But no, I think professional is the right way to describe it, which is why really this has been the consensus best team in the country for two thirds of the season. Now it's just a matter of can you keep that going? You know, get past Purdue and set up a Penn State game that does look a little bit less horrifying right now, but is still obviously one of the two really significant games on the schedule. And the one Michigan actually needs to win here to control its own destiny going into potential football Armageddon 3. Is that the number we're at against Ohio State at the end of uh, end of November? Does football Armageddon require two undefeated teams? Like, does 2016 count? Uh, boy, that's a good question. I, I think it does. I think otherwise it's just, it's the game kind of in its, its so normal. So then, yeah, like, then I think it's three. Football Armageddon 3, 06, yeah. last 2021, year. 2021, or 2022, excuse me, and 2023. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we're headed for. We'll see. Godspeed. <laughs> Godspeed. So if you're still here, thank you for listening, and we will see you back next week. Go Blue.